Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 257, Generic Placeholder, recorded October 23rd, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the one and only place on the internet where Geeks Rant doesn't happen anywhere but here. I am your host, Mark, sometimes called the Sultan of the Soapbox, and joining me this week are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the gooey Ken Anderson, and Miles, the coin master. I still don't like that one. Uh, we'll come up with something better. Wake him. Hey, gentlemen. <laughs> hey, Mark. And you know, I think I'm going to need a new nickname, too, because the gooey kid doesn't fit in Geek Rant, I don't think. How about the running fool? The running fool. Well, I'm, my running seems to be down here <laughs> recently, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking coin master is kind of limiting, right? I mean, I am so much more than the coin. That's true. Come up with something. Uh, maybe we maybe we'll go to the Quan Master, um, <laughs> but now everybody thinks that's a dance, so that yeah. wouldn't work. So uh, yeah, couldn't come up with a title. Seth put a generic placeholder up there because he usually gives the show a, a name, and then I come back and and make it something somewhat clever. Um, he says your names are poo poo. Here I'm putting this one in. Yeah, and, and the reality is his are probably every bit as clever, or even more so than mine. But I like to think they're more clever. Uh, and since you never get to see them, you don't know, audience. Um, you can you just have to take my word for it. Um, I like generic placeholder. Yeah, that sounds so that's really it. cool. Uh, I, I was saying earlier before we started. I'm pretty sure we had a show at one point called Insert Witty Title Here. So um, it's hard to come up with titles. Actually, that was a show title. It's hard coming up with show titles. I remember that one. Uh, yeah, two, Two hundred fifty-seven times we've come up with uh, something that meant something, and this time we didn't. So no, there you go. Let, let's be honest. Very few of them actually okay, meant anything. Fair enough. You know, with the uh, with the periodic table, the show that the long lamented show that we used to do, we would take something, some part of the show, and make that the show title. So we'd have to go back after the end of it and record an intro. And I know that, like Leo Laporte does that for the the Twitch shows, um, and that seems like a clever thing to do. But then there's the whole going back after part. So it's much easier just to come up with something lame from the beginning because, face it, nobody cares what the show's actually called. Have um, you ever accidentally repeated a show title? Um, I don't know. I can't, I mean, maybe, uh, but nobody's ever called me on it. Um, I mean, we did something like, you know, listener feedback, one, two, three, we gave up on those. So right. we, and you know, we tried to keep them. We, we tried not to let's, yeah. let's say that we did try not to repeat the show's highlight. Anyway. I did skip a number at some point, uh, like, you know, went from, from four to six and I didn't even notice it. Um, but I got, an email like three years later from somebody who'd been going back from the original catalog and the the whole email was episode nine question mark i had no idea what he was talking about um and i don't know that it was nine whatever it was um so i just sort of let that uh sit in my inbox for a few days and then i went what is he talking about so i went and searched my own website for episode nine and it wasn't there ah now i get it so we do have we do have a missing so of the two hundred fifty seven we've actually only done two hundred fifty six because I skipped a number somewhere down the line. It's like starting from zero. Yes, something very, like that. Very geeky. Yeah. Had had we been a super geeky podcast, I, I would have done that from the actually we considered doing that when we re, rebranded the show, starting with episode zero. But then we wouldn't get credit for the you know two hundred shows we'd done before, so I didn't want to do that. 
Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, like, I go to a meetup occasionally, and I say, yeah, we're on episode 200 and, like, 250-something, and, and that gets me some cred, yeah. you know, because I'm sure none of them ever go and listen to them, but the fact that I have a podcast that's been going for 250 episodes means that, you know, I'm at least given... I don't know, not reverential or, but you know, it's like, oh, okay. So you're somebody who really knows this stuff. And like I say, they obviously don't listen to it because they, they continue to hold that opinion. You yeah. know what we should do? We should just start making the episode numbers in hex. <laughs> <laughs> that would qualify as geek. Um, really? <laughs> that just means that we've got 70 uh, or uh, five years of, of mediocrity under our belt. So, you know, that, that's got to count for something, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So all those mistakes, I'm pretty sure we've made them. So, yeah, Seth, for the for the two people who are watching the video, can you lower your camera just a little bit because we're kind of looking up your nose? And uh, while it's a fine Roman nose, um, I'm not sure we want to look up it. Here, how about yeah, this? That's much. I'll better. zoom in. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, okay, uh, one of the things that I like to do uh, as I'm prayer. Uh, uh, ravenously preparing for each uh, show each week uh, is I will go down to my man cave uh, now that I have one. Yay. And I'll watch football or, or watch a movie or something. And I'll have the, sh- the laptop in my lap with the show notes up and I'll be pulling in uh, listener feedback and, and things like that. And so today uh, my Cowboys are on a buy and the uh, Falcons were just blowing it out. So that wasn't really a game worth watching. So I decided to uh, put on a, a movie that I've had in my collection for a while, but haven't had a chance to watch. It's a, it's a, an old one by most people's standards, and that's Mad Max Fury Road. Um, and I, I, I gotta say, I, I wasn't expecting much of this. I saw Beyond Thunderdome because everybody who was alive in the '80s saw Beyond Thunderdome. I haven't seen the original Mad Max, and I wasn't really interested in this one. I wasn't. I could not stop staring at the screen. It was such an amazing visual feast. Like for the first 30 minutes, I'm not sure I blinked, to be honest with you. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, you, you deserve to see it. And in large format is certainly preferable uh, than, than just on a, on a small screen. But the visuals, the, the blending of, of practical effects and, you know, gas bombs along with the digital and, you know, a trained eye, a tra- I'm not trained, I'm seasoned. I'm trained from years of couch potatoing. A seasoned eye can see uh, the difference um, between, you know, physical and, and digital most of the time. But here, even though I could see them, they were so well blended that it didn't bother me at all. And it was just, uh, it's a, it's, I like the kind of storytelling that this is, there's almost no, and perhaps entirely no, um, exposition. Not at any point does somebody say, well, what's happened here is blah, 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 blah. And at no point is there, um, a, uh, you know, uh, some sort of backstory where guy says, uh, you know, 27,000 years ago, this happened. So right at the very beginning, like over the open credits, Max tells the story leading up and then exposition ends there. And it's storytelling through confusion for the next two hours. And that may not sound pleasant to you, but it was such a, uh, a stark, uh, contrast to most movies today. I found it absolutely thrilling to have little bits of the story, um, just as people did what, as characters did what characters did because of their own motivations, you started to piece together the motivations as the, the movie went on. And, and I understand that's, uh, you know, a, a standard form of, of storytelling, but it is so 
unusual that, that today everything is spoon fed. Everything is handed. Every line of dialogue has some sort of context to it. Um, and honestly, I can't think of like since the matrix, that's the last movie I can think of where there was so little exposition. And there was a lot of exposition actually in the matrix as compared to Mad Max, uh, because you needed a lot of information, but so much of the things the story was told through the characters, just being the characters instead of taking a break to fill somebody in. So, uh, Mad Max Fury Road gets, uh, an enthusiastic, um, I'm going to give it eight and a half on a scale of 10. I just liked it that much. Wow. Have either wow. of you guys seen it? Have not. No, no I haven't. I mean, but the weird thing about it is I was in Australia as a teenager when the first one came out and it was, <laughs> I can't believe this is the most accidental, uh, success story ever. Because if you've ever seen the original Mad Max, it is so obvious this was a B-grade, low-budget production that I have no idea how it spawned the career, uh, you know, of so many people. And it became such a big movie because it was, I mean, literally, the country it's set in is our outback. There's, you know, that's just how it is. It, 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 there's no CGI here. That's the outback. And the old cars, somebody went to a junkyard and got a welder and took a few, you know, cheap old lemon cars and turned them into what they were. And, you know, the, the costumes are so ridiculous. Um, Mel Gibson's character back in those days, I mean, he was basically an acting student back then. He wasn't even, you know, it, it, the whole thing came together as this unexpected success story that, so it's we like Star Wars. No, yeah, but even Star Wars <laughs> had a budget, right? This this had no budget. They just said, go out there in the country and drive these cars around and, you know, we'll have a few explosions and just look mean. And that, that yeah. was basically it. And the second one was so different. The second one was like, wow, that one made money. Let's make an actual movie. And uh, and then the third one came out and the, sa- the two and three bore no relation to one really other than the title. So- yeah, I mean, I, I liked one. I thought that it was an intriguing story. It, the acting was brilliant. It brought you in. It it captured its intent. It was really good, but it was a cheesy B grade, but low budget movie. And <laughs> yeah. and look at it now. Rick in the chat room says you're giving it uh, uh, too much credit by calling it a B grade. Um, oh. <laughs> um, as I said, I've not seen the first one. I I know it was it started as a sort of a cult hit, and then it just wouldn't die. Uh, in the theaters and then found new life on video. Uh, and this one came in with such high expectations. And, I, and I'd heard people that I respect, um, whose opinion I respect, say that they really liked it, but I just wasn't interested in it. And interestingly, some of my favorite movies have been movies that I wasn't interested in based on the previews. Uh, the Matrix was one of them. I think The Matrix, the first one, is one of the, the best movies of the 90s, of that entire dec- decade. Um, and I didn't see it until I had picked it up in like the $3 bin at Walmart because I wasn't interested in a movie where the star is the special effects because that was the impression that I got from every advertisement for it. Hey, look at these cool special effects. Oh, and it also has Keanu Reeves in it. Um, and so I, I just wasn't interested in a movie where all it was was special effects. And then I picked up the, the video, uh, yeah, videotape, uh, and popped that in and watched it, and I was blown away by the rich tapestry of storytelling. It was an, an amazing sci-fi story that had fairly decent acting and really good special effects. 
uh, and I just didn't know that. And and again, Mad Max Fury Road was the same way. All I'd heard about was the amazing large sets and big practical effects, and I was I was going to watch it just for that, just to enjoy that art of it. And I did not expect to enjoy the bizarre Kafka esque uh, uh, dystopian storytelling as much as I did. It is now on my list of things to watch. Yeah. I also, uh, this weekend watched the, uh, Ghostbusters reboot, um, with a free coupon, uh, VidAngel. I don't know if you're, I've, I know I've talked about it before. VidAngel is a great service. They're actually under attack right now. Um, that offers you filtered videos. So you choose the filters and they, um, will filter it, you know, take out whatever words you don't want to hear or whatever scenes you don't want to see, whatever images you don't want to see. So Ghostbusters, I knew going in, this was not a movie that I was going to be able to let my kids see, but they wanted to see it. So VidAngel offered me a, a great opportunity and they, because they're kind of under attack right now and they want to boost the numbers, they're trying to do some, uh, some fundraising. So they want to boost their numbers. I'm sure that's what it is. They sent me a coupon saying, Hey, here's a free movie on us. And I thought, great. My kids have been pestering me about this movie. Um, so I'll, I'll get it for free. I paid too much for it was not worth the free coupon. I should have uh, seen the Iron Giant or something like that. Um, it was just so bad and so uninspired. The best part about it was uh, Thor dancing over the end credits. And I'm not sure that was because I liked him dancing or because I was glad it was over. It's a, it's a hard act to follow with the Ghost, Ghostbusters, though. The original was just such a classic. Well, that it would have been great had they made any effort to follow that. This was in uh, this was in so many ways a complete reshoot. Like they just did beat for beat for beat the exact same movie, um, but also without any of the charm or any of the wit or any of the great acting in the original one. So it was a, it was you know like in many ways uh, the Force Awakens is a beat for beat for beat remake of a New Hope. Uh, but I didn't mind that because it came off as an homage as as such a um, you know uh, uh, something we love we're going to cherish it this was let's dump all over something you love and make some money uh, and I just really hated almost everything about it uh, keeping well, them shareholders happy huh? <laughs> that's a bummer because I really I wanted to see this one I was I mean obviously I don't know that a movie is going to come out that that could live up to you. I don't think you can make a sequel that could live up to how awesome Ghostbusters was, but man, to hear that they just tanked it so bad. That's, that's sad. So uh, from the original, I, I'm, this is spoiler alert, but I, I, this movie can't be spoiled. So I feel okay about it. Um, the, uh, the main bad guy, Zool, right? When he, when he comes in the original, he says, choose your, uh, choose the form of your destruction. And and Vinkman says, "Oh, I get, it, I get it. Uh, uh, nobody think of anything because if we can't think of anything, he won't choose anything." And then um, uh, Ackroyd, I, I'm blanking on the character's name, says, "I tried to think of the most harmless thing I could think of: the Stay Puft Marshmallow." And boom, giant Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Well, as I said, this is a beat for beat remake. Only this time, the bad guy who's not Zool, but just some random guy who read a lot of books about occult stuff, uh, says, "I'll let you pick the form of your dis- your uh, destruction." And um, the chick who's the main comedian. See, I don't even know the actress's name. The, the Lisa McCarthy. Yeah, that one who's way popular, and I don't know why. Um, she says something like, "No, it wasn't her. It was another." Anyway, it doesn't matter which one it was. Said something like, "You know, I was. I would. If you're gonna make me choose something, I'd choose something cute and cuddly and small." And he picks uh, he, he the the ghost from the Ghostbusters logo. All right. 
and then that morphs into a giant scary version of that which ain't not only is it not original um it's not as well done as the original because it wasn't an accidental i tried to think of the most thing uh, harmless thing i could uh, could think of and part of the the charm of that first one was the ridiculousness of the giant happy go lucky stay fluff marshmallow man uh terrorizing the city but this turned into a giant scary looking version of something that was cute and they even made a comment later on uh th- this guy clearly doesn't understand what cute and cuddly means so uh, that's a, that's just one example of something where they tried to remake it but they couldn't even remake it they just reduced it so yeah they didn't remake they reduced the original that's right. that's sad Oh, well, that's really sad. All right. Some so, things are best left, you know, untouched, right? Well, I mean, I don't know. You could make it where Ghostbusters is like Hamlet that, you know, every generation has to have theirs. And it could be really cool if it's like, hey, we're making we're making that film and we're doing it. We're making it our film instead of our parents' film. But here there's like. Hey, let's crap all over that really great movie and see how much money we make. Yeah. Um, so and and they had they had cameos from the original Ghostbusters, of course, uh, not uh, um, Venkman because he's no longer with us. Uh, but even the cameos were uninspired and boring. Um, you know, when Bill Murray comes on on the screen and nobody cares, you know, you've made a bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And and I would. If I were to do this, if somebody came to me and said, we're going to remake Ghostbusters uh, 25 years later, uh, or is it 35, anyway, whatever it is later, I would say that it's Spangler, sorry, not Venkman. Uh, uh, it was, thank you, Rick, for keeping me. You've you've uh, corrected my pop culture the last two weeks in a row. Thank you for being keeping me from getting bad emails. Um, <laughs> if, if I were going to remake it, I would say, all right, well, it's 35 years in the future. All the old guys have retired. Uh, people have sort of forgotten about them. It was the flavor for a spell, and people have forgotten that uh, that these things exist. And because there's no video of it on YouTube, uh, nobody believes in ghosts anymore. And pick up from there. But instead, they went back to, oh, this never happened. It's all over again. And so they tried to reinvent it, but without all the the cool, you know, building built by you know a genius and and just all the really neat things that laid the story out the first time. They threw away and just said, oh well, there's a guy making ghost beer. Oh. yay that <laughs> sounds exciting all right so there's my two movie reviews one i knew i was gonna hate and did one i thought i was gonna hate and loved uh mad max eight and a half ghostbusters the reboot one and a half yeah <laughs> um and seth you are you were gonna get rid of your place for getting cheesy movies in the future well, um, you know, my my Netflix gift subscription ends on Tuesday. And so, you know, I got this email saying, you know, hey, your your trial, your gift subscription ends insert another form of payment. And I'm just like, uh, no, thank you. I uh, I mean, it has better movies than Amazon Prime uh, for the most part. I would say uh, 65, 35. Uh, so not quite two to one, but Amazon Prime is good enough for me for now. Um, I'm thinking about maybe investing in a Roku downstairs because my dad loves Fox News and they have a channel on the Roku. So if that's the case, then I can uh, I can kill the satellite payment and then I'll be able to have Netflix uh, as well 
And then, you know, the bad thing about that is my dad would then have no need to switch chairs in rooms to, <laughs> you know, can't go from TV to computer. It's all going to be on the TV. Well, the, so, the cool uh, thing about Netflix is, is you know, next year when when um, Daredevil season three comes out or the Defenders or something you want to see, you just pay the seven bucks for a month, watch what you want to watch, and then don't pay it again. And, and that's the beauty of being able to just pick it up when you want it and then let right. it go away when you don't want it. Yeah, and, and and that's what I'm thinking about doing, you know, wait till everything has been out. You know, I mean, if I can binge watch Luke Cage in a day, a weekend, <laughs> I can catch all of the uh, all the stuff I want. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, but uh, if I, if I'm, y'all, y'all's cord cutting talk is really, I really would love to kill my satellite bill. And then I would use that to uh, pay for Netflix, you know, because $15 a month, because you can't do the seven thing anymore. That's like, they don't offer that price apparently. So, um, but you know, I would just, I'm not going to pay for it and satellite. Yeah. I don't even know how much I pay. I truly don't. Uh, It's just, uh, they bill me every month. It automatically comes out of my PayPal and it's money I'm happy to give them. So I, I think it's about $20 for because i'm still getting the discs in the mail i'm that guy i'm the they have an entire distribution network serving me now um because <laughs> nobody else does that but is it still the case though where you can get the immediate release of movies on disc that you can't get downloads or has that all kind of become one and the same thing now no there there are two different catalogs there there's a much wider catalog of discs than streaming right uh, and and that's why i keep it and they make it a point a lot of times to release the the digital first because they want to kill off the DVDs because they want to be able to track what you watch and be able to charge you for it again and again. Whereas if you bought a DVD, you know, they haven't figured out a way to make you pay every time you turn it, every time you play your DVD yeah. yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, originally when I bought Netflix um, and RIA, if you're listening, um, go ahead and get your handcuffs ready now. Um, all those years ago, the, the stated purpose of that was to recover, reclaim all my videotapes. Uh, I could either stick them in a machine and digitize them and store them in my library, or I could get a disc from Netflix, digitize that and put it in my library. Either way, I own the movie. So I feel like I'm perfectly on the moral high ground to do so. Although I, I know technically that's illegal and, you know, come arrest me. Um, but I had... 200 plus movies on video cassette that I used Netflix's huge back catalog to help me digitize. Um, and now I, uh, I still get the DVDs and I still watch them and I still send them back, but you know, I no longer have that old catalog. So I'm no longer looking at the old ones, but like, uh, I had a hankering the other day to watch war games and I went to can I stream it dot com or can I stream dot it and and I it wasn't anywhere that I could find, but it was on Netflix for a DVD. So I just put it in my queue. A couple of days later, there it was, and I watched Matthew Broderick at his finest. Hmm. Um, and so that's Netflix is good for that. The esoteric things that you can't find anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also gets around the whole concept of downloading very you know large quantities of high def video content like. You know, can you get Blu-ray, Blu-rays on Netflix? You can, absolutely. Okay, yeah, because I mean, imagine trying to download that, even stream it. You know, that would be right. enormously difficult. I have been dipping my toe in the the Google Play and Amazon Video uh, market. I own a few of those, but generally, if I'm going to own a movie, I want the media in my 
fat little hands. You know, I don't want to um, to just trust that Google Play isn't going to lose my stuff or, you know, as much as I could probably trust Google not to go away anytime soon, that doesn't mean that 10 years from now they won't go away. And like, for example, I, I bought uh, Star Trek Beyond uh, on Google Play. And so if they go away, that, that movie goes away out of my catalog, period. I'm not going to miss it all that much. But the point is when I buy the, the physical disc and then I rip it and put it in my home media, again, RIIA, come, uh, come and arrest me, because technically that is a felony for ripping your own media. Um, but every time I buy a disc, I rip it, I put it uh, on my uh, hard drive, and then I have two copies. I have the physical copy and I have the backup copy, which... I'm, uh, it's legal to have the copies. It's, not, it's just not legal to make the copies. Um, and so I, I much I feel much better about that than just putting it out there on Google. And plus, you know, should the internet go down, I still have a, a catalog of 300 plus movies I can watch without the need to be connected. So I, but I'm 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 starting to sort of get away from that. But right now, I'm still on that stance of I want to own a physical piece of media with with the with the movie on it. Fair enough. Seth, what are your thoughts on that? Are you a, a downloader or a or a buyer? You know, I used to be a buyer and um I now I just watch it. So I don't feel the need to buy anymore because honestly there's there's if it's something I really, really want, I will buy it. But for the most part, I don't feel the need to own very many of the movies that are coming out. Good point. So, you know, they're just, they're not worth owning. If, if you took them away tomorrow, I'm not going to cry. But, you know, there's some of my books. If you took them away tomorrow, I would chase the van down the road. Uh, so it, it just, it just depends. It, and, and the ones I want, I'll go to half price books and find the DVD for a couple of bucks and I'll get it there because I'm cheap. And like I say, there's nothing occasionally like I made it a point to buy the Stargate movies that came out because i so loved stargate that i wanted to show them all the support i could and i bought them while they were new and paid like twenty dollars each for the movies because i so loved them i wanted to support them so they would be more you know so if it's something i like i'll buy it but even then unless it's something i really like i'll wait and pick up the media cheap yeah back when i was buying cds i bought all my cds uh, on physical disc and the first thing i did was rip them to mp3 even though iTunes and, and Amazon Music and all those guys let you do it, but it's it's not it's not DRMable, you know, I mean, or it is DRM. It's not copyable. Right now, I have full, unencumbered, unprotected MP3s of all my music, and if I want to put them up in Google Cloud, which I do, or Amazon or whatever, I can. But I had to go through that first step, and actually, I don't even. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so if I buy online music, so I buy an album from. Uh, Amazon, I will write that music to a DVD and then rip the the DVD to uh, an MP3 so they can get an unencumbered uh, uh, MP3. Uh, so if you buy the, the DRM'd MP3 from iTunes, for example, uh, I, I write it out, that breaks the DRM, and then I read it back because I just don't want my stuff DRM'd. But at the same time, I'm kind of a hypocrite because I have this huge collection of audiobooks from Audible that I don't have. They're all in the cloud, and I don't own, and I have to trust the company. So apparently for some things, I want physical media, but others I don't. I, I wouldn't buy all those books on tape. 
Right. But see, the thing is, you started the D- the DVDs long ago when there was really no good download distribution good channel, and that's habit. And now you've picked this up in an age where, you know, we talk about how the, the millennials after us, they're going to think, you own that? Why would you own it? Just go to click play on the internet. Right. And uh, because we started from an earlier time. And and though I've just admitted to being a felon several times throughout the the first half hour of this show, uh, I actually believe very strongly in doing things legally. Uh, and when I buy a disc at Walmart, I know I legally own that. And then I rip it and I make a copy of it illegally. Uh, and, but what's interesting is the way the U.S. law right, uh, works uh, is if I lose the physical media, if my house burns down, I have to trash my my backups. Because you're only allowed to have a backup if you have the physical media. And if you lose the physical media, you can't have your backups. As stupid as that is, what good is a backup if you have to trash it when the original gets lost? But mm. that's my cur- my understanding of current U.S. law. Welcome to the strangest company uh, country on the planet. Well, don't forget also that, you know, if you... If, if you're under the age of 30, for example, you probably don't appreciate a time when there wasn't as much media coming out True. on a frequent basis as it is today. I mean, it used to be very, very expensive to record an album. I mean, I used to work in Hollywood back in the early 90s, and I, I worked for Capitol Records for a little while. So I, I know how the record production business works from the inside, and... It, it, we used to have a budget of about $150,000 to produce an album. So an album would be 10 to 12 songs and, you know, label had right of rejection. So you'd end up recording many, many more than that. But to buy the studio time, to buy the two-inch tape, to buy all of the, you know, the mastering facilities and everything else, very, very, very expensive. And back in those days, an, a, a label would produce maybe 10 to 12 albums a year and expected maybe eight of those to be tax losses that would never sell and a couple of them would be big hits. Um, That's the world as it used to be. Today, the exact same album can be done on somebody's MacBook Pro. So, you know, you can produce a lot more content cheaper now and so there's a lot more volume and therefore streaming it and not owning it makes a lot of sense. But back in the old days when you didn't have that sort of volume going out the door, um, you know, owning the disc was something you probably wanted to do because there weren't as many to get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, and uh, I don't even know how to intro this. Uh, Miles, what is e-beggars? <laughs> e-beggars. All right. Well, this is – okay, for the last year and a half, I've been perplexed about this, and I don't know if anybody in the general tech geeky podcasting media ever talks to this sort of thing, but I I guess they do. Um, I, okay, so you guys watch YouTube, right? Periodically? Yep, yep. I've heard of okay. it. Okay. You've heard of it, right. Well, YouTube is becoming almost like my main TV channels now. I mean, I, I find myself watching way too much YouTube. But in the process, you know, you, 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 you ask, you search for things, right? I had this situation a couple of years ago where I got this stupid idea in my head that I wanted to go and buy an old beat-up Airstream trailer and refurb it, you know, turn it into a a tech lab on wheels that I could – I don't know what I was thinking. I was just, you know, in this mindset of having needing some sort of side project on the weekend. So, 
you know, of course, the first thing I did was I went to um, YouTube to try to find out things about other people who were refurbing Airstream trailers. And there's a massive community of people out there doing it. They're like collector car guys, you know, get these old cars from junkyards and turn them into multi-million dollar uh, vehicles. But anyway, in the process of doing it, you run across a whole lot of people who are in, I guess we'll call them in the RV community. And what I found is that a lot of these people, in order to, they, they live a life on the road. They basically gave up work. They just travel all around the country. You know, they follow the sun. Um, you know, they're in Arizona in the winter and they're in Canada in the summer. It's that sort of thing. And uh, they have to find a way to survive, right? So they've got to earn a living. And I got accidentally caught up into watching a couple of these channels of some of these people. And there's one of them out there called Nomadic Fanatic. Have you ever heard of this guy? I have not. Nope. Okay. Nomadic Fanatic is a guy by the name of, I think, Eric, I think is his name. Anyway, he's a guy from Washington State who uh, had this reputation of getting an old Winnebago, you know, RV and driving it all over the country and chronicling his his journey, his life story on YouTube. And he put together these very well-produced videos of what he was doing, where he was at, you know, and he's he's quite an addictive character. I mean, you start watching this guy and you know, you kind of fall into this repetition, you know, the whole thing. Um, so anyway, I'm watching this guy and I'm starting to see him travel, you know, all around the place and I'm really enjoying it. And then I find out that he gets somewhere on his journey. I think it was in somewhere in Sacramento in California somewhere. And his, uh, you know, RV breaks down. And so he has to go into get a new gear thing on a new transmission or something and he puts this video out basically kind of this sob story like the guy's broken down he's got no money his youtube money check thing that these guys get you know because they get paid like a royalty thing won't come in for a few weeks he's stuck on the road and you know he can't do it well i you know i've watched this guy for some time right so i said maybe i should help this guy out he's probably you know what what did it hurt so i i ended up paypaling him some money Apparently, I was not the only person to do it because we find out two or three weeks later, this guy's gone and bought himself cash, a $50,000 RV to replace the one that he broke down in. And lo and behold, I've been scammed by an e-beggar. So apparently, I wasn't the only one. So many other people got scammed by e-beggars on YouTube. To the point where now there's all these other YouTube channels of people who have popped up who are outing the e-beggars. So for every one e-beggar, there's about three anti-e-beggar channels. And it's becoming this thing. It's like this snowball that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And now there's all these guys out there producing these amazingly well-produced videos that are just damning on e-beggars, just just hammering these guys and outing them for all of these lies and it, it's getting ridiculous but i'm thinking if i've been sucking into this whole thing watching it i can't be the only one right i mean is anybody else out there falling prey to this stuff well let me ask you miles how long did you how much money did you send him two hundred dollars oh wow that's a lot 
So yeah. uh, I was going to say, you know, because, you know, we, we, we preach, you know, pay for what you use. So sending him something, I think would have been appropriate, but yeah, 200, you know, I don't know. Now, it's Miles, like, Miles is, is independently wealthy. So $200 <laughs> to him is about $15 to you, Seth. No, yeah. Okay. Really. So. <laughs> it, not anymore, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Really? No, I mean, I got the habit of buying free RVs for people. I guess that's one thing. I've actually considered, just as a social experiment, uh, doing like an Indiegogo or something like that that just says, I'm a nice guy, give me money. And just see what happens. And and make a video, uh, you know, with some production and, and, all, and, and, and that has no other message than, I'm a nice guy, um, give me money. And just see what happens. Um not not saying that I you know I have a need or anything. I, I've been curious about that, but then again, I realize that here on this show, I make periodic calls for money. You know, essentially that's what Patreon is. Here I am, give me money, and it's worth about eleven dollars a show. So um, apparently, it's not uh, not the biggest, uh, the most successful uh, social experiment. But uh, frankly, I'm okay with e-begging as long as you're honest with what you're doing right and i mean it's not from your story didn't sound like it was a scam it was just i have an rb rv it broke down send me money for a new rv and you did so you kind of got what you paid for um and i wouldn't call it a scam uh it was just he put out a request and and we'll see what happens and so now he's continuing to make the videos um i actually not knowing what this was i googled e-beggars and there's a website ebeggars.com where you can go up and just do that. Here's my need. I have money. Uh, I need money. Here's why I need money. And what I like about it is there's an upvote downvote thing. And so you can vote it. Uh, you deserve a dollar more than I do, or it's your problem. Get over it. Um, and as things get more, you deserve a dollar more than I do. It goes up the page, uh, sort of a Reddit style. Um, so, you know, you got a guy here. He says, I'm 21 years old and still leave, uh, live with my parents. Uh, I need money to pay for my medication. So two people say you deserve a dollar more than I do. Nine people say your fault. Deal with it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I guess philosophically, I'm kind of a bit of a voluntarist. I, I, I like to, you know, to go directly to somebody who has a need and try and help them out in the same way that I like to invent something and sell it directly. I mean, I'm not into kind of deferring that to a larger organizational thing i i try to do it one-to-one maybe it's just just the way i am but then i find out the, the interesting thing you said you know it felt like i wasn't talking to a scammer when i was you know giving this guy money but what i found found out um which is an expensive lesson to learn i guess is that the guy had been posting his youtube videos ahead of time and he had he had made the reason for doing that that he didn't want to post a youtube video of where he was staying that night in the case that somebody would, uh, you know, stalk him, right? Fair enough. Because it's all real time. So, what he'd do is he'd hold back posting these videos. Well, apparently, he held back posting the, oh, my God, my transmission broke down and I'm stuck for the next two weeks, for three weeks. And we find out that he posted those videos retrospectively after he already had his transmission fixed and he was somewhere in Arizona at the time. So, clearly, this was done with, with you know, ill intent. Um, and what ended up happening was somebody would accidentally bump into him on the road and then would say, hey, I saw that guy, but he's in Florida. I don't know why he's telling you he's in California. 
And then they'd show a photograph, you know, with a, a date stamp on it or something saying, oh, this guy's right here now. I, this is a whole lie. Mm. And then this, this whole thing kind of unveils into this whole mesh of complex lies that only the internet could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if this is something that is ever going to, I don't think it's ever going to go away. I think it's going to be something that the internet enables and it enables people to try to be somebody real when they're not real, but they're really good at acting that role. And I don't know, I guess my advice to people is don't fall prey to this stuff. Just check everything out. You know, having yeah. said that, what do you do? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the, this new uh, direct support mechanism. And I, I like, you, you know, you called yourself a volunteerist. One of my, uh, personal financial goals. You know, people say I want to retire and live in Fiji or whatever. One of my personal financial goals is uh, to have accumulated enough money to be stupidly generous and to to you know be in church. And when somebody says, "Here's a you know a, a mother who is having trouble uh, paying her rent," to just be able to write a check for a year's worth of rent and say, "Let me take that off your plate." That that's a goal of mine. I'm I'm I am saving t- for the express purpose of being stupidly generous, um, because I I feel that's you know my my duty as a Christian. That is my call to do that to serve my fellow man in that way. Plus, you know there is no true altruism. I, I get a kick out of being stupidly generous. So it's not really altruistic because I enjoy it. So I'm really it's entirely selfish. I'm doing it to please myself. Um, but uh, that's that's enlightened you know, self interest. That's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so that's something that I like to do, and I like the idea. Like uh, I think I've mentioned him on the show. I'm pretty sure I have. Uh, Chase Holfelder has a YouTube channel called uh, Major to Minor, and he's just started. I wonder what happens if I take key uh, songs that were happy songs and written in a major key, and I transpose them to a minor key. Um, <laughs> and so he's done things like, uh, for example, uh, "Every Breath You Take," uh, the classic '80s song. Um, the lyrics are a little stalkery when you listen to it, but when he transposed that to a minor key, it became full on psycho, uh, just by changing the saying the same tone, the same melody, just transposed it to a minor key. Uh, and he's super talented, but he's, you know, he started going on YouTube, just threw something up. It was just him with his like $9 Casio keyboard and a webcam singing a song. Um, and I've been following him over the last few years and now he does, uh, thanks to Patreon, He's getting uh, like five or six, seven thousand. I could go look it up instead of gas, but he's getting thousands of dollars every time he posts a song. He doesn't do it every week, uh, but uh, he does. The reason he doesn't do it every week is his production value has stepped straight up. He's doing full on music videos now um, and presumably paying royalties. I don't exactly know how that works, Uh, but he's, you know, he's, he's become that's his career. Instead of being, you know, a guy who did this uh, in his living room for fun that's he's now a full-time musician and he he he's talented but he's not so talented that you know rca records is going to invest millions of dollars in him and give him a three album deal just to see how things work um but he's talented enough to make a living selling his music and patreon and youtube those two the combination of those two have given him that ability uh to to do that and i i think that is just amazing the democratization of media in such that he's just a guy who does a thing that he likes and I like it too. So I give him money every time he does it, uh, pay for what you like. It's, it's become my, my mantra here lately. I like it. So I pay for it. And you know, myself and several thousand other people 
like it, so we pay for it. And now he's gotten to quit his job, um, whatever he was doing before, and now supports his wife and his kid uh, just doing songs. And I get it, you know, I I, I pitch him a buck every time uh, he does a video. It's worth a dollar to me. You know, it's a, uh, that's what a song is on iTunes, right? 99 cents. Um, and I enjoy his stuff. And even if I only play it one or two times, that's fine. That's a dollar. You know, I would, I would give a street beggar $5. So a dollar to, to this guy to, to make art is, is certainly worth it. And so, um, I'm not being insanely generous there. $500 a song would be insanely generous, but I give him a buck and, and it's the way th- the, the new economy is going to work. I hope anyway, that's my hope for the future that this promise of democratization through technology is actually beginning to happen. And, um, and yeah, the e-beggars, um, tarnish that, but also, you know, you, you, anytime you, uh, have a good thing, there's going to be uh, bad people who ride the coattails of it. So I'm willing to deal with the scum, uh, to get you know the the bucket filled. That was a stupid analogy, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the con men sorry, and women these days are always going to be around. They're just going to adapt to whatever you know, wherever the people are. That's where the, that's where the cons will be. So um, you know, uh, so if they're on YouTube, they'll be on YouTube. I'm sure you could unearth some on Patreon, and a lot of times with like um, GoFundMe or something like that. People will copy uh, like that happens a lot. So, you know, there's a little girl who has cancer and so they're raising money. So somebody will take those pictures and set up another Patreon or or GoFundMe page or whatever with the exact same person. But it goes to a different email address and the family doesn't know about it. So they, you know, yeah, I donated a thousand dollars. Really? We only made five hundred. And then this other page got all the press. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I mean, if you think, okay, you're walking down the street, there's some poor guy in the corner, you know, with a cup or something, and he wants some money to get some food and whatever. So you, you know, you drop him a few coins or a dollar or whatever in the cup, and you and you just sort of move along. You think, well, he's not getting any assistance from anybody, and maybe he can go and get a burger or something, and you know, he's fine. That's fine because it's one to one because you see the person physically, and you can you know verify it with your own eyes, and you make a decision in your own head as to what you want to do, whether you want to walk along or whether you chip the guy a couple of bucks, whatever's good. But when it comes to the internet, then you're finding these people on YouTube that have like 50,000 subscriber followers and they're acting like that guy on the street and they're assuming that a percentage of 50,000 people are going to chip them a dollar. It doesn't take very long before they're making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a month. Right. And and then all of a sudden, you're everyone's going, Oh, I hate that guy. You know, that guy's <laughs> scamming. And it's like, well, it's, isn't it? it maybe it's just the nature of the internet. We're just so, you know, there's so many billion people on the internet now. And we're all out there able to, you know, kick a couple of bucks to somebody. It's just being in the right media, which has the right, you know, exposure to the, these sort of numbers. Yeah, I, I'm just a inter- interrupt there, Seth, to, to follow up the conversation going on in the chat room. Uh, Patreon between uh, the PayPal fees and the Patreon fees and the credit card fees, I get roughly 88 cents out of every dollar you donate. Um, and that, you know, an agent would take 10%. Uh, and um, if I did direct credit card or direct bank and not through PayPal, I'd probably cut some of that out. But Roughly eighty eight percent is is what I get, and that's uh, that number changes because the the volume right. If you get more money one month or another, uh, the the credit card fees are in tiers, so that's the rough numbers. Um, 
And uh, there was a comment here. I, I know people who refuse to give beggars money because they might be misusing it. My, my thought about that one is that's not on me. If a drunk takes my money and goes and buys alcohol with it, that's him. That's, it's not me to decide. At the point I give that money to him, that is his money. And what he does with his money is not my business anymore. Um, and, and I am called by my, my personal uh, religious beliefs to be generous to those in need. Uh, and, and my personal rule, I've, I, I'm pretty sure I've said it before, one of my personal rules is if I have money on me and you ask for it, you get the money. No questions asked. That's just a rule I have. Uh, now, that's mitigated by the fact that I rarely carry cash on me. Uh, so most of the time when somebody says, can I have a dollar? I have to say, I'm sorry, I only have a credit card. Um, but because I, I don't often have money, I believe, and, and I'm sorry for getting super spiritual, but it's just, it's me. I, I believe that the, if God put money in my pocket and put you in my path at the same point, I'm not going to ignore that. And so if you have money, you get it. I don't ask questions. I don't ask how, you know, if, if, if you ask me for $2 for bus fare, you're going to get $2. When I might have had $50 on me, if you'd asked me for $50, my personal code says I got to give you all of it, um, I would have. But if you ask me for $2, you're going to get $2. Um, and I, I have in the past, I have paid rent for people. I have uh, you know, uh, paid for uh, cars to be fixed because the, the times intersected at just the way that I happen to have a large sum of cash on me and somebody asked for it. And so I give it. And I never felt bad about that. Um, you know, so I've, and of course I don't put myself in a position because I, like I said, I so, so seldom carry money that any money I have on me sort of by definition is spare money because I pay all my bills online. I do all that sort of stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I'm not going to make this about me. The, the point is when you give money to somebody, it stops being your money and it stops being your rules of ownership. Otherwise it's not giving, Right. So like like when we talk about this show, Patreon, I call that a sponsorship. You're not giving me money. You are sponsoring me. You are paying for the product. You then become my boss and you now have a voice. You, you always have a voice in what I do. I, I say all the time, this is listener created content, uh, but you now have a direct line to me. You are my boss. Um, that's different than just giving somebody money. Uh, like Miles, like you did with the, the Winnebago guy, you gave that guy money. You didn't have any expectation that he was going to return a service for that. You actually hoped that he would continue posting videos, but it was a gift of money that you gave to the guy. So if yeah. he was scamming you, that's on him and not on you. Correct. And, you know, I, I'm trying to, I try to do this stuff anonymously. I'm not interested in being recognized for it because that's not my point. My point is just to help somebody out. I mean, we're all human, right? You got to, this, this is the interesting thing that, that I, I hear you, I agree with everything you're saying in terms of, the, the motion of giving and, and the, the intent and the whole reason behind it. I'm not doing it for anything back. I'm doing it purely to help somebody out. But what's interesting is in the physical world, if that's the right term, in the, the real world we live in, this stuff happens in a more sort of natural fashion. You can see things with your own eyes. You can, you can give and, and sure, there's still scammers and thieves and whatever out there, but you don't, I mean, you, I, mean I don't even try to, put somebody through a filter too much on that other than just being relatively streetwise. But when it comes to the internet and the numbers and the volumes are so different, it's a very, very different animal. And and I sort of think that maybe it's part of a bigger discussion, which probably would never have enough time for today, but a bigger discussion about people's behavior on the internet versus their behavior in real life and how, you know, the last thing in the world I want to see is that, you know, you know the 
Western society turns into a YouTube comment thread mm. because, you know, that would be the worst thing we could ever have. But when you think of how many people are going around anonymously not saying who they really are, not telling the world who they really are, but still with their hand out wanting something, it's like, ah, oh, it gets hard to take after a while. That's a, that's an interesting thought, you know, and, and so many people, you know, I hear that refrain all the time that that guy holding the sign that says, you know, we'll work for food, uh, you know, goes around the corner and gets in his Porsche. Everybody knows somebody who sa- who says they know somebody who saw that happen. Nobody has actually seen it happen. Correct. My cousin's aunt's uncle saw that happen, but you didn't. And, and, and you don't talk to the, the cousin's aunt's, whatever I just said. And they're going to say, no, I, that was my neighbor's dog's walker boyfriend saw that. Um, it's one of those apocryphal stories that doesn't happen, um, you know, or maybe it happened one time ever. Uh, but again, it's, uh, I, I love the way you said that when Western society turns into a YouTube comment uh, stream, uh, that is the internet is both the best and the worst of humanity. And that's no more present than youtube right so i love that that's such a great thing because you have these guys like the the vlog brothers who have again they're making money doing nothing but posting videos and they're making a living and a good living off of it so that's the best of the world but also their comment streams devolve into you know rampant anarchy and that's the worst of the internet right there juxtaposed to one another and yet the world hasn't blown up yet so we must have some capacity as rational humans to separate the one from the other yeah, well said. Yes, but I don't know. We we had capacity as rational humans to separate one from the other. What capacity we had seems to be in serious need of an upgrade um, or maybe a service pack release or something because <laughs> it doesn't seem to be holding up to the level of stuff we have out there now. Yeah, I, I didn't intend for that whole conversation, but I like it. It's a good conversation to have. Um, and I'm going to jump into some news here in the, you know, the case of the internet being, uh, the best and the worst of the people, um, much of the internet was offline this weekend because of the worst of the people, uh, launching a DDoS attack against, you know, I, I, we've talked about this before. The fundamental architecture of the internet is based on trust and it cannot withstand a breach of trust and a DNS attack, uh, brought down big old giant chunks of the internet yeah and it turns out that it was um as near as they can tell it was done via a botnet of internet of thing devices so really we as a culture are responsible for bringing down the internet because you know oh look honey this light bulb can order pizza and you know you know and this light bulb will sync to disney.com and change colors with every new show that comes on and all of these things that we do first to market and so hey yes they have security and by security that means they advertise the username and password of this device and it has a full IT stack and so um, it's able to like send email and ping requests and stuff like that and the the thought of security of internet of things is so far behind the adoption of the internet of things that it's a wonder stuff like this doesn't happen all the time we warned people about this a few shows back remember Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) so you know hey next time you need some help we're here guys come on (laughs) 
Well, and this is uh, this is what is commonly known as a uh, bandwidth amplification attack, in that by sending a single packet to uh, an open device, that device can then be turned into a packet sending machine. Uh, so it doesn't take, uh, you know, one guy with one DSL or even dial-up modem in Botswana can bring down a large chunk of the internet by using the bandwidth amplification built into DNS. And you can say, it's a, it's really simple. I'm, I'm over, overly simplifying it. But basically the way the DNS uh, attack works is you ask the root servers, hey, tell me every server you know about. And that's a command that's perfectly reasonable and valid. So if you bring up, say, a back, you're level three and you bring up a background uh, backbone router, you need to be able to make a copy of the entire known DNS routing table. Because that's what you're doing. You're now level three and you're serving that to your clients. So there's a command where you say to all the backbone routers, tell me everything you know. Well, that takes some time to tell me everything I know. All right. So when your internet connected light bulb, who couldn't handle the information anyway, sends a perfectly valid request, tell me everything you know. And then the internet connected door lock across the street sends a command to the same server, tell me everything you know. And then the Raspberry Pi sitting on a shelf somewhere that the guy forgot he had left plugged in says to the DNS, tell me everything you know. Suddenly, the internet is full of this perfectly valid traffic that isn't doing anything but locking up DNS servers. And what DNS is, domain name system, when you type in www.elementop.com, that translates to an IP address. Uh, and the internet wasn't broken because you could always go to those IP addresses. But nobody knows the IP addresses. Not only that, uh, subsystems built into the internet are designed for with the assumption that DNS is there. Um, you know, your web browser doesn't know the web address of elementop.com, no matter how many hundreds of times you've been there. It just doesn't cache that information every time it makes a DNS request. So when the DNS servers are busy, the internet is offline. You know, this came across my desk on Saturday? No, Friday night. And uh, I was a little unsure of what was going on because, you know, I have servers in data centers and, and we'd not seen any problems at all. Our server traffics were good. Our incoming uh, expectations of, you know, incoming requests and so on were normal. Customers weren't calling me saying, hey, we can't get to this web asset or that web asset. Everything was working just fine. So I didn't think there were any problems at all. What I did know is that um, on Thursday, uh, Electronic Arts, EA, released uh, Battlefield 1, the uh, very well-anticipated first-person shooter game that is uh, all the gamers go nuts for. Well, what had happened is they did a beta of this a few months back, or well, a couple of months back, and when they did the beta, they had a couple of groups DDoS their servers as a kind of a, you know, bragging rights thing. Um, and so we thought, oh, it's just a bunch of script kiddies, you know, they're just out there trying to get sort of bragging props with their mates or whatever. So um, when the production release, when the actual release of the game went on, I was expecting this is going to happen again. And so I didn't hear anything in the news. What I did hear was that, for EAs, they chose a server, a DNS server group called Dyn, D-Y-N. I'd known of D-Y-N before because uh, D-Y-N DNS was, uh, I think it was originally uh, for dynamic DNS. In other words, you had, a, you had a computer that was on some IP address that your uh, service provider was giving you and they 
you know, change the lease on the IP periodically so it would change all the time. But you needed a static place to go and get access to that machine from the outside. So what you'd do is you'd install a little bit of software on the machine and it would so it would reach out to DynDNS and they would give you back the IP address of what that was at the time and they'd update it every 30 minutes or so. So if your ISP changed, you know, you get the new one. So I'm thinking that they what EA did was they gave their DNS hosting up to Dyn and then Dyn got attacked and I thought that was the end of it. And then next thing you know, I've got customers contacting me going, have you heard about this internet thing going down? And, of course, my reaction is, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a bunch of kids trying to play Battlefield. You know, it's nothing important. Don't worry about it. And now I hear the whole story. I'm thinking, oh, really? But I still can't for the life of me think that this was anything more than a bunch of script kiddies trying to take down Battlefield. And we all got caught up in the, in the whole crossfire of it all. Yeah, as far as I know, nobody has claimed responsibility, and nobody's uh, they 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 know what script did it, but they don't know which you know uh, moron triggered the script. Uh, and uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that you, I don't want to say you can't know, but it's really, really, really hard to know. Yeah, Rick in the chat room is saying BF one is freaking awesome, and I'm I'm on board with that, Rick. <laughs> it's, it's consumed too much of my life already. <laughs> Uh, and even if you host your own DNS server, as many corporations do, the DNS servers, depending on the level of caching, have to check back with root periodically. So in, in my case, for example, uh, I didn't notice much of anything because I my web browsing is fairly limited to uh, a, a select number of websites just because of the nature of my habits. And I have a caching DNS server in my house. So it had everything it needed. But that's just because I, I happen to have enough cash to ride it out. Uh, but the only way to fix these things is to throw bandwidth at it. You can't block the requests because they're valid requests. And there's no single IP range. So the only way to fix this is just, just, just to open up the pipes wider. And, you know, that's a problem. When one guy with a constrained, you know, 3G connection can bring down the U.S. Internet, uh that there's a problem there, but it's a, such a fundamentally baked into the architecture problem that, uh, you know, IPv6 fixes it because DNS security is built in. But, um, you know, when are people going to move to IPv6? Never. Yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Tomorrow. I think we might as well just give up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to the next one. Um, apparently, T-Mobile... Uh, has had has had an expensive lesson in uh, what words mean. Did you know that words mean things? They do. You know, apparently it's news to T-Mobile. But yes, there was a rather large fine that they got handed out. And if my page would load, I would tell you what that number 7. is. $7.5 million. Yeah. And well, stop spinning, stupid Firefox. It's the DNS attack. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, actually, yeah, the total they had to pay out was $48 million. Um, 7.5 of that was, uh, was to the FCC has a fine. And then, you know, there's rest. But yeah, so because they were selling what they were claiming was unlimited data, but then it was turned around and being limited. And so, you know, 
rather than just say, hey, if you use this much, we're going to throttle you. If that's what you said, then that's what's going to happen. There's no, but you know, you can't say, hey, you get unlimited data and by unlimited, that means unless you use it, then we're not going to let you use it. But as long as you don't use it, you have unlimited. So um, the FCC said, no, that doesn't work. Pay up. And so that's uh, what T-Mobile is having to do. So, you know, the FCC has not been known for their abundance of uncommon sense recently, but this one, thank you for, um, for protecting us. I actually come down on the opposite side of this. I think T-Mobile, uh, honored the letter of their contract, uh, and they didn't limit. They, they restricted, they throttled, but there was no point at which bits stopped flowing. And so unlimited doesn't mean unlimited highest speed possible. Uh, at least I have never taken it to mean that. Uh, and, and in their contract that nobody ever reads when they sign the thing that says I've read and understood, uh, the most told lie in the world, I have read and understood. Um, <laughs> the, it says specifically that uh, your, it doesn't give the amount or, or when, but it says specifically that your data throughput may be throttled. Uh, and the way, uh, the, the policy currently goes, it, um, it's a top 3% policy. So it deprioritizes heavy data users during times of network congestion. That's, that's something every network administrator ever has done. Um, now admittedly, I wasn't going around telling people, Hey, you have unlimited access, but I was throttling heavy users when I was a network admin, because that's what you got to do. Um, so at this thing, anybody who's used more than 17 gigs in a month, their data would be slowed down at times during times of heavy congestion, not all the time, just the time when you want to use it. Uh, so I, I'm actually okay with what T-Mobile did. Um, I mean, misleading marketing, surprise, surprise. Uh, but that's not an FCC thing. That's a, you know, that's a different thing. So I, they didn't limit their users. Uh, I don't consider throttling to be and an, uh, a a violation of unlimited. I, I mean, is that my excessively libertarian mindset going there, Miles? What do you think? Um, I think that there's truth in advertising that has to be honoured. But that's and not an FCC thing. That's right. You're right there. That's more of an FTC thing, right? I mean, that's yeah. a trade issue. Okay, so if the FTC didn't have any problem with it, fair enough. They can't really, you know. Uh, I mean, they sh- they should have said, look, there's an issue with truth and advertising, and and we don't seem to come down on anybody on that one anymore for some reason. But at the same time, we we live in a world of of um, Seth. You said it so well last show. The what I what I always rely, uh, know as the seven plus or minus two rule, where you know things are in small bite sized chunks. So that's all our human brains can handle. So if you can get a catchphrase that's sort of eight to ten words, no more, and you can parrot that thing over and over and over and over, and that might be T-Mobile has unlimited bandwidth, T-Mobile has unlimited bandwidth, and you just say it enough, everybody starts believing it and thinking that that is the, you know, the, the law of the land and we can be absolutely 100% guaranteed. If you get T-Mobile, you get unlimited bandwidth. They don't have the time or interest or acclination to want to read the fine print. And Mark, Mark, you're absolutely right. They get bitten by the fine print. But at some point, when the fine print becomes four pages of legalese that nobody's ever going to read, and yet it's all about that soundbite and that little eight to ten word soundbite because we can psychologically get that out there in marketing, 
it's a very dangerous precedent. So I'm I'm sitting behind the situation of saying I think in this case T-Mobile crossed the line. I don't think you can say unlimited unless you really mean unlimited or you define a, maybe a better word as uh, or you you break out of the 8 to 10 word phrase and give somebody the whole story. Because I want to address inf- that, but first, uh, Seth, what do you think? Well, if it's limited, then it's not unlimited. It's not limited, so, though. Not at any but, point did they limit the number of bits that could go across. But they, they limited how you could access them. Okay, so it, that's that's what I want. I'm sorry, Go ahead, uh, before I interrupt. Well, no, okay. It's So here, it just says it deprioritizes its heavy users. So, you know, here's the thing. If it's unlimited, it's unlimited, but if it's limited, it's not unlimited. So, you know, maybe it should have been the FTC, not the FCC. But the fact of the matter is you have these large companies screwing with little people who can't do anything about it. So I like it when the government steps in and says, play fair. So All right, so here's not playing fair. Here's my objection here from a technical standpoint. I agree with the spirit of the ruling. But I disagree with the technical, and maybe because of my background in actually prioritizing bits. I mean, that was that was what I did for a living, uh, or at least part of what I did for a living. Uh, so I understand that if, if you have that all bits are created equal mindset, then uh, you can't have a VoIP conversation over the internet because every guy who's downloading a media file or uh, downloading a, a big zip file, a zip file is a great example. A zip file, it doesn't matter what order the things get there. It's Let's say it's a 25 meg zip file. Bit one can get there first and bit 2,501 can get there second and bit two can get there third. And none of that matters because you don't unpack it until it's all there. Uh, but a, a voice over IP con- uh, conversation has to happen in the right order all the time. This Skype conversation that we're having right now uh, is very um, uh, susceptible to packet deprioritization. If you try to run an algorithm that puts things back together, and Skype is pretty re- uh, robust about that, but even in our conversations, you hear you know digital artifacts here and there. That's because a packet didn't get there on time or got there out of order, and we need them to be in the right order. Uh, video, that's the reason... When you you know click uh, play on a YouTube video, there's a caching process. It caches because it can't be guaranteed that it's all going to get there in the right order. So it puts things together ahead of time uh, so that it can play back while it's rearranging things. So if you tell me, tell T-Mobile, you can't prioritize packet data, I can never watch a YouTube video again without streaming all of it first. I have to cache 100% of it first. And real-time voice communications, which is T-Mobile's primary business, goes away. Because you've told me, because of you use the word unlimited, you can't prioritize packet data. All right, so I'm, I'm using the most absurd, absurd example. But now, we, if you say, well, uh, some limiting is okay and some isn't, now you have to have an arbitrary arbitrator that says, um, you, this packet is okay to prioritize at this time. This packet is not okay to prioritize at this time. And now you have a federal government, a federal uh, program, telling a company how they can run their business. That's why I'm fundamentally opposed to this. What they did was what must happen for internet traffic to proceed. You must prioritize packet for the modern internet as we know it to exist. And if you're going to slap them down with a $48 million fine... Because they did what every person who's ever passed a packet over the internet must do to stay in business, 
that's not a good precedent to set. It's not that they, it's not that they're getting on them for throttling. It's that they're calling it. It's they're not telling people what they're doing ahead of time. Throttling heavy users. Hey, if you use 17 gigs of data, we throttle you. Possibly. At some times. So, okay. But then that's not unlimited. But but that's the thing. They so, have to throttle yeah. everybody. 100% of internet users get throttled. It happens all the time. So if you tell people you can't use the word unlimited if you throttle, then there's no such thing as unlimited. So then how do how do I then as a marketing person say we won't cut off your bits if I can't use the word unlimited if I'm going to get a, a nearly 50 million dollar fine if I use the uh, the word unlimited because 100% of my clients are going to be uh, prioritized and throttled at some point. Yeah, unlimited is a dangerous word though, right? That's that's like saying you ca- you can't get a little bit pregnant. I have no right? idea yeah. what y'all are saying just so you know. I'm here so oh. <laughs> Um, can you hear me? Okay. I hear you fine. It's not you. Oh, okay. It's, it's Seth. He, he's red on my Skype because the oh, internet is prioritizing man. packets. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess I get maybe my concern is the term unlimited. If they had a better word or a better phrase or a better way of explaining that, I'd be fine. But what is that um, then? Uh, so I now, now you're putting the federal government in the position of being marketing executives. No, I agree. I'm not. I don't want government involved in regulating this sort of stuff at all. I don't. But at the same time, I also don't want a corporation to have the right to blatantly lie or mislead its consumers into spending money for something that they're actually not going to get value for. However, I'm. You know, I don't believe the government has to have the role of being the police force to do that. The free market can do it really well. It's just the problem with these large infrastructure uh, organizations like, you know, telecommunications, power, all those big things that require large organizations to run them, the risk is they can get very monopolistic on success. So we have to, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's the libertarian in me saying I don't want to see government step in and control this. But at the same time, these corporations are getting so big, they're almost as big as divisions of government anyway. All that happened here is T-Mobile didn't give the Congressman's Real Election Fund $48 million, so they had to pay it to the FTC. If they had just paid their lobbyists a little more, see, the other companies ponied up their lobbyist money now, so they're not going to be fined by the FCC. This was just whoever is the head of that committee that's on the oversight of them put the word out, and T-Mobile took one for the industry. Because, you know, I mean, let's face it, the gu- the large companies like T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon, they spend Buku's amount of money getting legally legal covering to just take it to us poor consumers. And so whenever they get took into them a little bit, it's payback. It's like, hey, that's my elected official doing to you what you've been doing to me all these years. Shut up and take it. <laughs> that's my that's my position on this argument. Wow. And we usually think so much alike on so many things and we're so very different. You never know where that's going to come from. A, a story about, you know, T-Mobile being jerks. And I agree with you on this one. T-Mobile um, should have been more clear, but that what a what is the message that's more clear how do you explain to you know uh, a 17 year old buying a phone with the with their allowance 
that sometimes you're we're going to prioritize some packets over another. Um, so you you have a pricing structure that's that you know at at fifty dollars a month we pri- we throttle you once you hit fifteen gigs at sixty dollars a month we throttle you once you hit twenty. But that's gigs. the whole thing. That but you're making it sound like once you hit a threshold you're automatically throttled. That's not true. Once you hit a thres- threshold you're th- flagged as first to throttle when needed. And you're assuming they're being above board on when it's needed and not when it's w- on their whim. And I don't trust them. So, T-Mobile is an interesting company there because I was with T-Mobile for about, I don't know, 12 years, something like that. I was a very, very long-term T-Mobile customer. And it was only in the last three or four months that I actually dropped them in favor of Verizon. And the main reason was where we live, our coverage with T-Mobile was getting worse and worse and worse to the point where I couldn't have a telephone conversation with anybody without the thing dropping out on me five, six, seven times during a three-minute conversation. It was horrible. Um, and I, you know, I went. I happened to be in uh, in Oregon State. Uh, I don't know. I think it was sometime in May, and I was out on a cattle ranch of all things. I was doing a, a computer system thing for a a bunch of ranchers out there and uh, I couldn't get any T-Mobile and the worst case was that I was using Google Maps to try and find where to go in the middle of nowhere and I did not download stupidly did not download the map to my phone before I left from the hotel to go out to the site and I got halfway out there no maps, no idea how to get where I had to go, nothing. I had to find a town that, and find a coffee shop, find a Wi-Fi in a coffee shop, download the maps, and then get back on the road. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I could not stay with T-Mobile. I get out there. At lunch, I was just talking to these farmers. I said, what do you guys use just out of interest? What is your preferred provider? And they said Verizon. So I came home and I got Verizon, and I haven't looked back. But the interesting thing is... T-Mobile offer this unlimited, well, you know, within reason, unlimited offering, but you can't get it everywhere. If you look at their coverage, it's spotty in a lot of areas. Verizon have an incredible nationwide presence, but they don't offer that unlimited. They they did in some old grandfathered plans with their MiFi's, but you can't get those anymore. They were discontinued a long time ago. And I think that I priced an unlimited offering with Verizon, and it was nearly $800 a month. So it might be that we're not talking 20 30 bucks more a month for your phone plan to get unlimited. We're talking significantly more because of the infrastructure cost. And if T-Mobile are not um, competing with Verizon for coverage and so on, are not re- willing to reinvest in their infrastructure to get more towers to do whatever they need to do at that sort of point. Um, maybe offering unlimited is kind of not telling the whole story. You know what I mean? Yeah, here in Atlanta, we call that T maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you just may or may not get signal. Um, that's, uh, again, in the Atlanta area, Verizon is the, the carrier of choice. Uh, where I came from, uh, it was AT&T or nothing. Literally, there were no other carriers. It was AT&T. They had a monopoly because they were the only people who put an antenna out in the cow cow pasture. Um, As you got more in toward Dallas, Verizon was there. So I've been with AT&T now since 1993, 94, 1994. So uh, what is that? 22 years I've been with AT&T. 
Uh, and I, when I moved to Atlanta, I, uh, I have much spottier coverage here with AT&T than I did, uh, back in Dallas. And I've been, you know, t- contemplating making the switch to Verizon. But the, the thing is nobody is better. They're not worse. They're just all about the same. They are calculated to be uh, equally crappy in terms of your cost and in, in your service. Um, and so it's just, it hasn't been worthwhile for me to make the change. Although, you know, I, I'm at a point now where uh, in my home, I have a microcell. They sent me a microcell because uh, I had such terrible service. Uh, at off In my office, I need a microcell, but my, my IT weenies won't let one go in, understandably. Um, but uh, I've tried it and it won't work. Um, and so, uh, I have a, I have an extra microsoft I can't use, but anyway, the point is, uh, coverage in your car, (laughs) (laughs) I would need broadband in the car. So that wouldn't work. Um, the, the issue is that, that they're all terrible. And so while the consumer in me is like, yay, get the terrible company, win one for the Gipper on this one. I, I want to believe that, but the, the constitutional libertarian in me says, Government telling people how to run business, bad thing. Shouldn't support this. Yeah, well, I mean, the businesses tell the government how to run the country. So, and that you see how well that's working out. Well, for the us, difference so. is the government doesn't have to listen to the businesses. They do have well, to listen to the people. Um, and, you know, I'm not even going to go into that. Theoretically, uh, businesses are made up of people, right? And so when when the business tells somebody that is taken as a uh, a large group of constituents. That's theoretically how that works. That's how the whole uh, political action committee was supposed to was supposed to work. But instead, it's just I, you know, Seth. I, I think you called it. You didn't give us enough money, T-Mobile. So here's a fine. Yeah, so, I would love or, to think that's a joke, but I don't. You know, I I would I would so love to say, oh, that was just me vamping for the show. But I, honestly, I believe that you know and i really believe that there's some informal agreement between the major carriers you know i think they just got out some dice and did or maybe did high card to see which (laughs) carrier is dominant in which city you know okay you know at&t you get dallas verizon you get atlanta and t-mobile you get houston and then okay what's the next group of three and then you know has a general rule if you lose the city you don't get to put as many antennas around and unfortunately i know something like that is the case because it's otherwise they would compete more but they don't want to compete they don't want to have to have the same infrastructure in all the towns so they just they arg so (laughs) i'm glad that they had to bend over like they've been bending us over all these years well, isn't the FCC commissioner, wasn't he an ex-CEO of one of the major telcos or something? I, I mean, believe so, yes. Yeah, there's it, a lot of, I mean, if you're, if you're. I bet it wasn't T-Mobile. <laughs> no, I, don't, I can't remember the whole story. It's just, it's a little scary though, because the FCC have so much power in terms of bandwidth and, and frequency allocations and the, you know, the auctions for frequency space and so on that goes on. And, um. We are so reliant on communications as part of our life. It's a it's a critical infrastructure resource for all of us these days. And it's really, uh, the FCC probably have more control as an agency over that area in government than most other government departments have. I mean, maybe FDA is a little different. Maybe, you know, maybe they're a part of it. But 
Yeah, at some point, if the leader, if the, the guy at the head of the FCC used to be the guy at the head of AT&T, then you know something's got to be corrupt somewhere. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I agree with you, Mark. I don't like government involved in this sort of thing. I just like to see that the, the infrastructure was spread out to a lot of, you know, maybe hundreds of small companies that were all allowed to compete so we had a true, you know, competing market. So reading the Wikipedia page for Ajit Pai, uh, forgive me for pronunciation, uh, it says he left his Department of Justice post in uh, February 2001 to serve as Associate General Counsel at Verizon Communications, Inc. So uh, oh. you're right, Seth, wasn't T-Mobile. <laughs> yep. I, I love the fact that two news stories generated an hour and a half of content. I, I'm sorry, Miles, I'm going to have to bump you yet again. Um <laughs> um but the uh so we'll we'll pick this up the first uh week in november because reminder we're not doing a show next week but learn uh, this is about miles um uh struggle we'll call it he's fighting the good fight with computer eye strain and i want to pose the question is this a real thing or are we all just a bunch of wimps so let's well let's talk about that um next week um computer eye strain uh or two weeks from now next show a computer eye strain under the context of can't we just stop whining Uh, (laughs) okay (laughs) so seth what do you have to tell us that what happened this week in history okay october the 21st 1961 saga a silent shoot 'em up Western playlet, which is like a short movie, I guess, was made on the TX Zero computer, pronounced, um, t- I don't remember, I looked it up. Um, anyway, and Douglas Ross, who is, if you're into early computers, he's a big name in there. MIT's TX Zero, a very early general purpose transistorized computer, is used to write the program for Sega or Saga and was comprised of 4,096 words of magnetic core storage. The Western playlet was run on a CBS special for MIT's 100th anniversary and the film, 13,000 lines of code choreographed the movements of each object. A line of direction was written for each action, which were as granular as the movement of each actor's hands, even if it went wrong. For example, at one point in the show, the sheriff put his gun in the holster of the robber, which resulted in a never-ending loop. So this is like one of the first things where a movie was done, you know, computer animation. And that happened way back in 1961. So, and if you know where there's a video of this, please send me a link because I found dozens and dozens of places that talked about this, but I couldn't find the link anywhere. So, um, you know, maybe my Google foo is rusty because I don't use it like I used to. But um, if you, if you know of it, help, help a brother out. It sounds interesting. Uh, so it was the first essentially computer generated special effects. Well, movie. So, you know, yeah, think, the whole movie was on film. Okay. Yeah. So computer. think, you know, like uh, DreamWorks and all that kind of stuff. You know, this is the great, great granddaddy of those. 1961. That must have been so terrible. But, you know, yeah. Think of where we would, you know, but we had to have it to get where we are today. Yeah. Cool stuff. All right. Uh, so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. We've we've spewed a lot of words uh this show uh some of you you probably agreed with some of them you probably didn't let us know 
over at elementopi.com. Click the contact us button at the top of the page. Answer the world's hardest captcha. Um, and uh, send us uh, fill out the form that gets priority in my in basket in basket in box in in wet. Um, or you can send an email directly to geekrant at elementopi.com. I'm pretty sure that works. I haven't been getting any a lot of email though, so maybe it doesn't work. Uh, anyway, uh, you can do that. Uh, and uh, that goes to to directly to the in baskets of the other people lest you think I am filtering them. Or you can uh, dial 559-IAM-OP and leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice account, and we'll play your content right here on the show, most likely. Uh, my standards are pretty low on that, quite honestly. So tell us what you think. Uh, I would love to hear from you about this or any other topic. Uh, if you've got suggestions for future show topics, uh, let us know. Uh, again, elementop.com. Click the contact, but contact us button at the top of the page. Now, Seth. What do you have this week to lower my productivity so that you seem like a better hiring option? Okay, this is a truly pointless website. Um, you basically have to remove the french fries by clicking on the top one. And um, just go there and see if you can clear them all. Okay, so once you click the top one, they all go away. No. Oh, I see. Because that's what's happening to me. Really? What browser are you using? Chrome. Oh, in Firefox, that's not what it is. So it's not, they I'm all go away. <laughs> I see what you, yeah, okay, because it's hard to work out what's on top. Huh, let me try it on Chrome and see what happens. I'm almost there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Seth. Now I'm going to be doing this. Oh, now they have numbers field. on them. <laughs> okay, for Chrome on mine, they're going away one at a time. Okay, so if you click wrong, it goes away. That's it. If you miss yes. one, they all go away. So that's it. I was missing them. Oh, okay. Every time. But the, it does look different in Firefox than on Chrome. It really does. Huh, Okay. But anyway, so click the link and play this game, and you get a you get an awesome message on whether you get them right or wrong. It's, I'm almost there. <laughs> it's like pick up sticks. Pretty much. Oh my god, I'm down to the last one! Yay, done! <laughs> Congratulations! Oh, the great me- I'm, I'm I'm not going to do this spoiler on the great message. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know it's. You know, they can't all be rent a midget or buy your own roller coaster. So, you know, <laughs> these make those even more awesome. Oh, but it's the same one each time. So once you figure it out, it's uh it looks like every time I reload it I get the same puzzle. Yeah. So limited limited ability there to uh to lower my productivity beyond because I'll do it tonight and that'll be the end of it. Um <laughs> In fact, I'm doing it right now and, and multitasking very badly, having a difficult time putting together coherent sentences and clicking French fries. Oh, it's so difficult here. Which one is it? That one? Oh, no, it wasn't that one. Got to start over again. Okay. So that's it, folks. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, guys in the chat room, it's always great to have you around. Um, uh, you can do that uh, Eastern time, 730-ish. Um, we at, at go to elementopia.com or follow me on YouTube youtube.com slash i think it's mark.a.cockrell um and you can subscribe there 
or again on the elementopia.com slash live. I put it there. And so you can watch it every week. It's 7.30-ish. Emphasis on the ish. We try to start at 7.30. Almost never do. Um, <laughs> but check it out. We love to have people live. And again, the best thing you could do uh, besides giving me money, that would be awesome. But the best thing you could do is tell people about the show. If you like it, tell other people about it and uh, try to explain why you like it uh, because it's not obvious <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, Seth, Miles, thanks for hanging out. And I'm going to say that's it. That ends this episode of The Geek Grant. Mm-hmm.